On Cinema Smorgasbord presents How Do You Do, Fellow Kids? We discuss the life and film career of the always unique character actor, Steve Buscemi. On this episode, we're talking about the 2000 prison drama Animal Factory, directed by and featuring Steve Buscemi. How do you do, fellow kids? I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as usual is the Birdman of Alcatraz, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? Doug, in my world, fall starts today, and that's a bummer in some ways. It's cool in other ways, mm-hmm. though I will say the thing that people most talk about at the beginning of fall is, finally, we'll have a break from the summer, and this weekend it's going to be like 90-some degrees where I live, so like, I don't know that summer's quite over yet, but... Uh, in another way, it kind of bums me out, even though I love fall, because inevitably that means winter's coming. And that now I get it with climate change, it's not inevitable. Soon there will be no winter, but you know, that's the end of the world. I'm not thinking about that, I'm just thinking about winter <laughs> as a psychological idea. And it, it's, it makes me sad, honestly, and that's hard for me. But still, we got a lot of fall, we got a lot of runway in fall to go. So I'm trying to be more positive than negative. Liam is referring to the fact that we are recording this episode on September 1st. Uh, by the time you hear it, it'll be a few weeks down the road, and maybe the temperatures will have dropped a little bit where you are, depending on where you are in the world. Though, just like yourself, Liam, this weekend, as of the time that we're recording, it's going to be really warm in Ontario, and I want, it, I, I want those temperatures to drop. I want it to, to... I'm looking forward to winter. I'm looking forward to getting cozy with my hot chocolate. Liam... <laughs> Having big, Psychotic. gigantic, Psychotic. ridiculous storms, having to stay inside with my beloved. Um, Liam, recently you had some minor surgery uh, sure, on your sure. hand. Um, I heard that the reason that you've had to have surgery on both arms, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is because you like to yank your shit so much. <laughs> <laughs> True? <laughs> Why do you have... So many issues with and you got this is you had carpal tunnel and trigger finger in your other hand is it and this one is also for carpal tunnel is that correct yeah well in fact the carpal tunnel situation is worse in my right hand but I got the left hand done first because I right. also had trigger finger for people who don't know trigger finger it has nothing to do with the name but basically you have a tendon that's not uh, uh, moving right in your hand mm-hmm. and so it makes it hard to uh, flex and unflex your finger one of your fingers and so like my middle finger was useless and that seemed like more of a pressing (laughs) issue than my carpal tunnel so i got that done first but it turns out the trigger finger is a much more traumatic surgery so that hand was fucked for a long time so Mm -hmm. i put off the other hand thinking it was going to be just as traumatic and now that it's done my hand is almost back to normal and i haven't even gotten the stitches out yet so right it, You'll mean, be back to hardcore I mean. dancing any any day now. <laughs> well, I, that is not true because <laughs> just bumping my hand on anything is like, ooh, ow, it is still a little tender. But I can use it, though. It's not use, It's not a useless – people might remember who follow me on social media. When my left hand was a thing, for months I just had like a swollen, gross claw that if I showed it to anyone, they would be grossed out. And yes, it, it is gross. what it is. That's it just disgusting. what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Made me sick just to even look at it. But what caused this? What uh, what made you have carpal tunnel in both of your hands? Well, I mean, like a lot of people, I'm sure it's just like 
typing without the proper wrist support. Though mm-hmm. the the first onset of carpal tunnel was after I got my uh, a job at an ice cream shop. Oh, People that's don't right. know the scooping of the ice cream is really bad for your wrists. And they had an ergonomic scooper there that would be less <laughs> bad for your wrists. But uh-huh. it was really hard with that scooper to make a proper ice cream cone. You know, there's like a shape people want with their fucking ice cream cone. So if you're using that weird scooper, you couldn't make a right kind of ball. And people were bummed on it. I give people their cone and they give me a look like I had fucked up their ice cream. And I'm like, it's still ice cream. It's just not a normal shaped cone. They would just be mad at me, Doug. So, it, you know, I, I, I'm sure other stuff. I, you know, I, I got the surgery after we moved because I did a lot of the moving when we moved out here to Chicago on my own. And that really fucked up my wrists as well. So I don't know. I, it's hard to say what the cause is. All I know is I'm hoping I will wake up in pain less than I was before. Liam, we're at the time we're recording this. We're still in the midst of the SAG AFTRA strike. We mentioned on our yes, uh, recent episodes that you know we have some hesitancy, or at least I do, and I'm sure you share these thoughts as well regarding the promotion of upcoming films. Uh, we know that uh, we want to show solidarity with those who are unable. Uh, because of the studios to promote their upcoming work. But uh, I just want to mention, since uh, we have to talk about something in this opening segment, that Steve Buscemi is in a recently released film. And that movie is Vacation Friends 2, uh, which was recently, as of August 25th, released on the Hulu platform, um, directed by Clay Tarver, one of the showrunners of the Silicon Valley television show. Liam, did you watch the first Vacation Friends? I don't think it looks very interesting to me. It's it's not something I'm interested in, and so when I saw the trailer for the sequel, I thought I'm good. I'm not gonna. That's not for me. You know, it's very generic sounding, right? Vacation friends, and it, but it also it feels like those comedies that were successful like five six years ago, where it was just a group of people, you know, in a far off place, and they have kind of wacky things happen to them. And most of those, I never had enough interest in to check out. And this kind of fits in that category. As you've mentioned uh, previously on on one of our podcasts, Liam, you like John Cena as a comedic actor. And yeah. I don't know about the female leads of it, to be honest. They don't they don't stick out as recognizable, which isn't to say that they're not talented. Um, yeah, but this one, this uh, Vacation Friends 2, adds Steve Buscemi into the uh, the mix as a character named Reese Hackford. Does that, does that like tickle your fancy? Does that make you at least want to check it out? It'd be hard to, I don't know if I'd be able to catch up on the story without having watched the first one. Yo, after our last episode, we have to fully acknowledge that Steve Buscemi can also be hit or miss. He's not quite Eric Roberts' level of hit or miss, <laughs> but we we have to acknowledge that we are going to be covering some shitty things as well as great things, talking about Steve. And so, uh, no, man. I mean, same thing with John Cena, though, right? Like, I don't even watch – I haven't even watched that many things with John Cena in it that I thought were bad. But just going off the trailers, I'll watch this trailer John Cena and think 100% I'm in. And not just the difference in style of comedy. Like he has a absurd, ridiculous looking comedy coming out soon with Allison Brie. Right. I forget what the name of it is, but it's like he's like a military guy or some shit. I don't fucking know. <laughs> the trailer looked kind of funny. Now, not enough where I'm like excited to go see it, but I watched a trailer and thought, oh, that seems all right. That seems kind of fun. Uh, but uh, the film is called Freelance. Freelance. Way. I thought there were jokes in the trailer that landed for me, uh, and so I thought I'll see that. But it's not that materially different than than Vacation Friends. Only the trailer for the first Vacation Friends, nothing made me laugh. And if you have a trailer with Laurel and John Cena, and I don't fucking laugh, that tells me this is not a movie I want to fucking 
give give my time to because here's the deal when you watch a trailer and it has jokes in it that work for you that doesn't mean the movie isn't shitty those could be the six good jokes in the whole goddamn movie and let's let alone the fact that sometimes a movie can be fun and funny but also boring because the characters like you can have a movie where there are jokes that land but the story is so stupid and useless that you feel like you're wasting your time watching it. You know what I mean? Uh, And then the question becomes, is this movie funny enough? Like, for example, this might be sacrilege for some people, but there's nothing interesting about the story of Hot Rod. Hot Rod works for me because I love the humor and it's funny enough that I don't care that there's no movie there. I mean, I guess I I sort of agree. But conceptually, the idea of a a terrible stuntman who is devoted to, you know, doing terrible stunts. I mean, that that's that's like Super Dave, right? I mean, it's it, there's something there that's already conceptually funny about it. But I do get what you're saying, which is that it takes more than the concept. It it and and it even takes more than the actors. You gotta you got you gotta have funny well, I, situations. And fu- I just funny... I I just want to be clear that there's a level of comedy where if you said, well, there's no character development, people would think you're a fucking crazy person because right, that's not the point right, of the movie. Right, 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 right. A lot of these movies want to be funny and they want to be a story. They want to have narrative impact. Well, if that's the kind of movie you made and the jokes are just mid and there is no narrative impact, then the whole movie feels like fucking torture, right? And sometimes I can get fooled into watching those movies if I see a trailer and there's a few jokes that really work in the trailer because guess what? That might be the whole movie. That might, yeah, th- yeah. That, you know, I, I, a lot of people complain about trailers recently because they give away plot points that they don't sure. want to give away. And I care about that a little bit depending on the kind of movie it is. But a lot of yeah. times I don't care that much. What I care more about is the number of times I've seen a trailer where every joke that works is in the fucking trailer. Mm-hmm. That bums me out more than, oh, I can tell from the trailer that someone's a bad guy. You know, some movies that matters. If it's a big reveal, I guess that matters. But a lot of movies, who fucking cares, man? You're not, if you're here for the mystery, then you're here for the wrong reason. You know, it's every movie is its own sort of logic, and every trailer should be made with the logic of that movie in mind. A, A really great example that's not a movie is more of a TV show was the trailers for that Ahsoka show. Cause now right. that I've started watching it, a lot of the footage from the trailers, the initial trailers, it's just the first two episodes. That's brilliant because then yeah. like you haven't spoiled any people think they know what's going on, but in reality they haven't seen a lot of the actual most important parts of the show. I think that's really well done. I wish movies would make those decisions more often than they do. Again, to be fair, directors don't make those decisions. There's a whole other team that makes the trailers. So sometimes directors are very upset with the trailers that come out for their movies. But, you know, it is what it is. It's one of the things I always liked about Paul Thomas Anderson, who cuts his own trailers and is like, right, look, yes. I, this is, I know, you can see why studios would hate that. They're like, we have a whole team of marketing, you know, uh, people who are experts on knowing what they should be putting in there, but it can be very frustrating. And I like you, I mean, how many reviews have we both read where it's, they're talking about a comedy and it's like, oh, it's really funny, but then in like the final half hour, they got to go back to the plot and then it stops being funny. And it's like, well, you know that should be a lesson but it doesn't ever seem to be a lesson uh in a lot of comedies um liam there's also uh upcoming from september 27th to october 1st the woodstock film festival and they announced recently that Kiefer sutherland and steve buscemi and michael imperioli are going to be attending with dozens of films panels and music this uh, year's festival includes 28 feature narrative films and 26 feature documentaries and yes yeah, steve buscemi is going to be attending along with a lot of other celebrities i don't understand how this works right now in terms of what they're allowed to promote and what they're not allowed. Like the Toronto International Film Festival is just about to start as of the time that we're recording this. It's just in the next week or so. Um, 
are celebrities allowed to attend or is it only celebrities that are not American because uh, SAG-AFTRA covers the U.S. but it doesn't cover the U.K. or Canada? My understanding Uh is that if you're going to not promote a new project, that's okay. So, like, they can go to conventions and shit and stuff like that. Or if it's one of the companies as it goes. So, like, I saw a clip of – what's his name? Big scary guy. Kylo Ren. What's his name? Oh, Adam Driver? Yeah. He was at Venice – promoting ferrari ferrari that's right and someone had a question that was just like why are you here promoting this movie and he turned it around to a better question is why can neon a company that is relatively new and relatively small afford to pay us our dream stuff why can they agree to all the shit but these giant companies they can't afford it that seems ridiculous to me i'm here because neon is actually willing to do the thing we asked them to do. And I thought, well, that was a good way to turn that around to the thing you want to talk about and really is why they're doing it. They're trying to embarrass these big studios who are continuing to say, we couldn't possibly afford to do this, which like, I'm starting to think, Doug, side note, that might be true, but not because the demands are unfair. It's because these companies have wasted so much money on bullshit that they really can't afford to do the right thing, which is like... That's a scarier possibility, but it might be a possibility, right? That they like, well, we already gave all our liquidity to the CEOs of the stockholders. I mean, there there might be something to that, right? Because we know how many millions that they're getting there, paid. There right? are there are a number of members of the union who are suggesting publicly that all of these studios cook their books and that a lot of this strike isn't going to be them getting what they want. It's going to be them basically destroying these studios because the studios have been committing financial crimes. They've been which, which lying all, about their all income. The, all the more reason that they are unwilling to yes. give in to the demands because they know that it's going to reveal shit that's going to make them look particularly bad. Yeah, and also probably cost a lot of their head guys their jobs. Yeah. I, I think a lot of these studios might just be not – interested in the bit a lot of business now and we can get off this i don't want to bore our audience too hard a lot of business now is not about the business it's about the stocks options and what you can steal from the ideas and it's never actually about doing a business well like the 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 very concept that you succeed in business by doing business well is now almost like a commie idea you know what i mean like it's like you have supposedly leftists now who are like what if you had a business where you just did the thing you're supposed to do well and ethically. And it's like, well, only a fucking Marxist would think that, which is like, you know, it's so ridiculous. Like, what if we did capitalism not as a shell game to steal money from people, but we just sold actual products? And I, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of these studios, it's just about stock options and cooking the books and like actually making you know, entertainment is like the last thing that they give a fuck about. Uh, by the way, I didn't mention explicitly, but the reason that Steve Buscemi will be attending the Woodstock Film Festival is because he'll be showing his film, The Listener, his uh, his upcoming or I guess current directorial uh, film. And that plays into what we're going to be talking about today, his second directorial feature, Animal Factory. But before we talk about that, before we take our break, I wanted to just talk to you briefly, Liam, about the idea of prison. This is a prison movie. The whole movie takes place in a prison. Uh, and it's based on a book read, uh, written by Edward Bunker, who was writing about his own experiences in uh, in prison. It, it, it plays very realistic in regards to how things um, are, are 
presented on a day-to-day basis within that prison. What are your thoughts, Liam, on the concept of prison? Now, you and I, I believe, I can say confidently, we've never been inside prison for anything that we've we've done in society. No, never. Never. I'm sure you do know people who have spent some time in prison. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, both friends and people I worked with when I worked at Broad Street, like people who were, uh, not all of them were homeless, but people who were in a program that was folks coming out of various prisons in Pennsylvania. Sure. So you have a little direct experience with people who have had that, uh, some of these um, experience in, experiences in prison. What are your thoughts on prison? Uh, do you think That's such a that, prod. <laughs> no, it is a prod. So let me be a little bit more open about it. I think universally, maybe that's maybe that's too far broadly people agree that the way that the prison system works in the united states and canada right now is not ideal because it leads to a lot of recidivism which they even acknowledge in this movie that people come back all the time so there must be something wrong about the idea of how the prisons work because people end up back in prison again and maybe it's the social um, aspects when they get out of prison maybe it's the prisons themselves what do you think is going on with prisons in your country and my country that make them so bad at what they're supposed to be doing, which is uh, helping people rehabilitate themselves? I think uh, we, this movie gives us an interesting opportunity because it's filmed not exclusively, but primarily at Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia. Sure. Mm-hmm. Anyone from Philly has probably been to Eastern State for like the haunted stuff or for other events they do like there's a museum there they do parties there now events i've even been to a couple of film screenings uh literally like in the the prison area of the penitentiary uh and eastern state if you go there now it feels fucked right like you you see it in this movie this is a dark scary place right uh and the original idea for this prison was sort of based on this panopticon idea of you have prisoners and then there's a central sort of place where they're being watched right right Mm -hmm. the thing about the panopticon is that it comes from a place of compassion that people don't know about that quakers developed the panopticon and the idea was that quakers thought hey we can't just hurt people to get them to be good so what we'll do is we'll create this model of a prison that's sort of based on the idea that God is watching you and that feeling that people have that they're being watched and this reminder that there is a being who is keeping track of what they are doing will encourage reform and then prison will be less of a place where people go to rot and more of a place where people are changed and can then reenter society. And now we know that a panopticon is mostly a torture thing, that it's literally psychologically damaging to any and everyone who's in that place, not just even the prisoners, but the guards as well. Often it's the ISR, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. basically have deep psychological scars. I think, though I very much am a prison abolitionist, which I'll get to in a sec, I think we have to start with the realization that prison, and for that matter, police, often start with the idea of something that is well-intentioned, that prisons weren't created just to crush humans. Police were often not created just to be the worst version of what that is, that there was some inclination that good was being done. Now, was that good tempered by racism and sexism and every other bias that people had? Yeah, of course it was. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we have to acknowledge that one of the reasons people 
cringe at the idea of not having these institutions is because they believe to some level in the idea that we need them because they were developed for seemingly good reasons. However, mm. any institution that has a starting point can have an end point. So it's not true that we couldn't live without police because we did. It's not true that we couldn't live without prisons because we did. The reality is prisons were developed that prior to that people had now I'm not saying we need to go back to the options before prisons because often they were execution or sure, slavery yeah, yeah. or, or public, dungeons uh, yeah 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 I'm not saying that at all but what I am saying is we came up with a solution I think there were good reasons for that there are also bad reasons for that and it's not working and I think one of the reasons it's not working is because it's based on an idea that people don't acknowledge because we continue to live in this modern fallacy that as modern people, we no longer have superstitions, that we are beyond superstitions. And that is an illusion. The reality is the central tenet that when someone does something wrong, they need to be punished mm -hmm. or else nothing is accomplished is a superstition. It comes from a corruption of a Judeo-Christian mindset. It's not even in the actual text of the Judeo-Christian framework from which it's taken, but it is based on this idea that there is some fucking scale, and if the scale is imbalanced, something bad has happened. And that is bullshit. It's not real. It doesn't help anyone. And in fact, while I am not advocating for like a forced labor system, I do think this central question of who is being helped by how we deal with crime, how is society benefiting? How is our victims benefiting? How are criminals benefiting and, and actually being changed or in some way helped to live a better life? That needs to be a central question. And we pretend that that is the question, but underneath it oftentimes is this really deep feeling that when you do wrong, you have to be punished. Well, we all know that's not true because lots of people get away with doing wrong and sure. the world, and the world still the, turns. Some of the biggest examples of it yes. and the most hurtful. Yes. Yeah, yeah, of course. We, yes. we, we see it every day. But I mean, what you were saying about the idea of punishment, I mean, that's built into us from childhood, yes. right? Yes. Yeah, so of course and people are going to bring that with them into adulthood. Yeah, and it's not real. And we need to let that go and start instead with admitting that something has happened. It's it's not about pretending that there aren't things, peop, actions people take that hurt others or hurt the fabric of society. That's true. That is a real thing. I'm not denying that. What I'm saying is what are the actions that hurt us and individuals and what could we do that would actually fix those situations? And those questions are not really being asked in any fundamental way. All we're saying is we've got this old creaky thing that doesn't work. How do we tweak it so it starts to work right? And I don't think that's the right question to ask. Uh, and I think this movie, though I don't think you know Eddie Bunker wrote this thing in order to show everyone that prisons are, should be abolished. I don't think that was actually the sure the motivation. But it, I don't think I don't understand how anyone could watch this thing and go, "Yeah, this works. This is good. This is a good system. All of this is functioning well. We're we're our, we are perpetuating a good societal reality." Right, right. It's it's interesting to see a presentation of prison life that is not focused entirely on the negatives at all time, even though there's negatives that are in the background, like horrific negatives, like prison rape and things like that, that are just in the shadow of everything, and that there's behavioral things that people have to learn very quickly if they're wanting to survive in prison. 
but you know it, it being presented kind of matter of fact everyday life but when you look at it from the position of of someone who has never been to prison like myself and and hopefully will never experience it it seems like a nightmare like the scariest most horrific thing you can think of that people are experiencing all the time just outside the walls of your city it's happening right now and we're just you know we're kind of okay with it and there's also that aspect in a big chunk of society i know that you know this too liam which is that people want it to be scary they want it to be horrible they really like do this. they really people do. joke about prison rape all the time jokes about dropping the soap all that sort of shit, right they want it to be such a horrible thing that people that they think it's preventative, right? That that people will never want to go there. And then what they create instead is a situation where people go there and then they have to return to it because it creates this entirely different way of living within it. And and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the thing that's most interesting about Animal Factory specifically is the way that relationships get formed within that prison and how people rely on each other and how it creates I love one of the things and we'll talk about this in just a moment, that this is a very non-judgmental movie for the most part in regards to how people survive in a situation that is literal madness that is like the, the it's supposed to be all set by rules but those rules are so flexible and so um ill-defined at times that there are people who just skirt around them and i guess it's just a microcosm of the life outside of prison as well but uh, yeah prison as a concept to me is so confusing because there are examples of restorative justice in the world that we can see and it's just like with um with so many other large issues in the United States and Canada where people are, you, you know, you could see examples in another country. Oh, they're doing it. And it seems to be, you know, m- working much better. And those, you'll say something like, when I say you, I mean, political leaders would be like, oh yeah, but that wouldn't work here because this is a different society. It's, it's all structured differently. It's just like, well, can we fucking try it <laughs> just to see if it would work here? <laughs> I mean, we hear this all the time about gun control compared with Canada compared uh-huh. to the U.S. or gun control in Australia compared to the U.S. It's like, that's a completely different country. It's completely different. It's like, Jesus, they still wake up in the morning and they go to bed at night. Most of it is still the same. I think one of the problems we have, Doug, is a lot of people think they're being pragmatic when they're actually being ideologues, you know? Mm. Like a lot of people go, well, yeah, prison, it doesn't seem to be working, but like pragmatically, what could we do? And it's like, right, but it's not working in a way that's actively hurting us. So it's not pragmatic to not utterly change it, right? That's not pragmatism, that's giving the fuck up, right? And even more so, I I feel this way when we talk about the, the, not just the uh, recidivism of it all, but the idea of crime itself. Because if you're going to argue justice the way that a lot of people do, that there's this concept of justice, then you have to admit that the society itself is unjust. Right. And that there are so – if we're going to argue ideology, there are so many factors that make it hard for people to live. And that doesn't justify doing evil, but it certainly is a contributing factor. So like – my thought is always, well, we also have to make our world less shitty than it is. It, and I'm not saying a utopia. The, the the crazy thing is that we keep saying, well, utopia is impossible. Therefore, we must live in a hell on earth. I'm just saying, let's make it not a hell on earth and then see how many assholes are actually willing to do crime. My, my thought is, if we made this place a little less shitty we'd have less people in prison. That's just my beginning thesis <laughs> of this whole fucking thing. And again, that's not to say there wouldn't be people who 
just while out for no reason. That happens all the time, but it's hard to understand that because even then it's like, well, what about the mentally ill people who committed murders, like who started mass murdering people? Well, okay, but weren't we shooting lead into the atmosphere at that point with all of our cars? So like literally people were getting lead poisoning and going crazy. Like there are so many contributing factors to every single case of somebody just being evil and wilding out that I'm just like, it doesn't make sense to me that we want to focus on the one thing, the acting, the behavior, and not also think about the factors that contribute to those behaviors uh, at all. We just want to leave all that stuff alone and just focus on what somebody did, you know? Yeah. And of course, our our inherent need to punish the guilty and the way that that punishment, the form that that punishment has to take, it, it makes it all the more difficult because you could see the success that other countries have in regards to reducing recidivism. And then the people who want more direct and harsh punishments, they see it, they're like, well, that person, you know, they're not being raped. They're not being threatened by violence every day and they're coming out of it and they're like better citizens and they're better, you know, they're healthier and their mental health is better. And it's like, well, that's not how it's supposed to work. And it's just like, if it keeps people from committing crimes again and it makes them be part of society in a way that's really healthy for them and other people, isn't that a big win? But for some people, they don't see it as a win. They see it it's unless that person was punished in, in a severe manner that it's never going to be a win for them. And that's a tough me- you know, mental leap for a lot of people to make. All I'm saying is if it was all about the victims, which is what we hear constantly is right, right. victims' rights, then it would matter when victims have a change of heart or even start off in a place where they go, I don't need this person to die for what they did. Right. There are so many cases in this country of victims begging for the life of the person who hurt them and judges and juries saying, nah, fuck you. This person's going to die. And like, then clearly victims don't matter. And that's not to say there aren't victims who want some kind of vengeance, which is what I would call it instead of justice. Those people exist too. I just don't know why the whole state apparatus has to help them get that vengeance. I just think there could be a way, especially when we're talking about not, you know, you kill someone as much as I think there are plenty of mitigating circumstances in murder as well. uh, I get that the wound of murder hurts so bad that someone might be not rational, but we we're talking about vengeance for stealing a fucking car here. You know what I mean? Like the prisons aren't actually full of murderers and rapists. They're mostly full of petty thieves and folks who sold drugs, some of which are now legal. So like, fuck everyone. You know what I mean? Like that's my vibe on the whole thing. You know, (laughs) I thought it was important for us to put kind of our feelings on it right up front because this movie is, as I mentioned before, not it might be judgmental regarding uh, how the prison system is set up, but it isn't necessarily judgmental regarding how people survive in that system. So let us take a break. When we come back, it's Steve Buscemi's second directorial effort, 2000's Animal Factory. The main issue here is the protection of society. I feel really like just paranoid. Haven't been here long, have you? Next thing you know, Drop your drawers or he'll throw you to the game. I'm not gonna let that happen. Little I've seen tells me you're neither stupid nor weak. This guy, he's been talking bad about you. Gotta get yourself a weapon. This guy's prehistoric. Don't do anything without me. 
get you out of here. Get you out of here. A young man goes to prison, and a tough, older convict takes him under his wing as a mentor. It's 2000's Animal Factory, directed by Steve Buscemi, only his second feature directorial credit after 1996's Trees Lounge, which we've also covered on this podcast. Uh, I have a theory that it kind of works as a Rosetta Stone for Buscemi's entire career, and even beyond that, to our particular podcasting career, if you can call it that. Liam, but I'll get to that in just a little bit. Written by Edward Bunker, based on his book, The Animal Factory. Um, we've actually discussed Edward Bunker previously when discussing Reservoir Dogs, where he plays Mr. Blue. Uh, he wrote about his prison experiences and post-prison experience uh, with his book Straight Time, which was turned into a movie. He co-wrote Runaway Train and appeared in it. Uh, John Voight's character in Heat is based on him, and um, he, was uh, he was actually in prison with Danny Trejo, who also appears in this film and also made his debut in Runaway Train, which we've talked about on the Eric Roberts podcast, or at least I have, Liam, and you have since watched it. Uh, co-written by John Stepling who has some experience adapting crime fiction himself, having adapted Elmore Leonard's 52 Pickup in 1986, a well-known American playwright, screenwriter, and teacher. So now that we've been doing a Steve Buscemi podcast for a little while, I, we can really see how this kind of fits into his career. So this is based on a book by Edward Bunker, appeared in Reservoir Dogs as Mr. Blue. Um, we, we have Mark Boone Jr. in here. We know that Steve Buscemi and Mark Boone Jr. worked as a performance arts slash comedy team in the 1980s. They worked with Rockets Red Glare, who showed up in Trees Lounge. He also appears here as a security guard. Uh, we also have Seymour Cassell here, who Steve Buscemi acted alongside in In the Soup. And uh, we, we talked about in the Reservoir Dogs episode that when Steve Buscemi went to the audition for Mr. Pink in that role, Seymour uh, Cassell was, he actually wrote along with Seymour Cassell, who was auditioning for the role of Joe. But on a wider scale, Mickey Rourke is in this film, who gave the Eric Roberts podcast its name and started alongside Eric Roberts a number of times uh, in, in terms of uh, most notably in the Pope of Greenwich Village. We have Danny Trejo, who helped train Eric Roberts in that movie, co written, of course, by. Um, sorry. And, and who was in prison with Edward Bunker, by the way. Was, was in prison with Edward Bunker, and in fact, uh, he writes about Danny Trejo specifically in some of his books, and this was well before Danny Trejo became a famous actor. We have Willem Dafoe here, who appeared in the Paul Schrader film Dog Eat Dog, which was also based on an Edward Bunker novel that we covered on our Cinema Fantastica podcast. And one of the producers of this, Liam, is Andrew Stevens, who appeared in The Boys in Company C, which we covered on Whatever Happened to Vic Diaz. So it's all a rich tapestry that fits together. But what I'm really getting at is Steve Buscemi, as his career has gone along, there are people that have been in his orbit, and he brings them along with him, and he wants mm -hmm. to make them part of his uh, his films in particular. And I think that's really kind of heartening to see, and especially because they're so fucking talented, as we see in this movie, which has an unbelievable cast, starting with Willem Dafoe as the older criminal Earl Copen, Edward Furlong as the young Ron Decker, Danny Trejo, Mark Boone Jr., Seymour Cassell, as we've mentioned, Mickey Rourke, Tom Arnold is here, John Hurd is here as well, Rockets Red Glare, as I mentioned previously, and some other familiar faces as we go through it. Liam, this is not a movie that I hear talked about very often, um, but uh, it is one that I remember when it was released. It was it got like a little bit of heat. There were some people talking about uh, it as um, it's even on the poster for it. They mentioned comparing it to like the Shawshank Redemption, which I don't think is a very uh, apt comparison. But what did you think of 2000's Animal Factory? When it first started, Doug, my anxiety was that this was going to just be a slightly elevated Oz, right? Right, 100%. Oz, Oz came out in 97. And honestly, I think one of the reasons maybe people didn't, I, I didn't, I've never heard a lot of people talk about this movie. And I think because post-Oz, there was a bit of a mm, wearisomeness towards things that felt like Oz. I think by 2000, is this 2000, this movie? Did we say? Yeah. 
I think by 2000, people were starting to be like, okay. I mean, not, not that Oz was over at that point, but it's just like, we don't need more of Oz per se. Mm. And so when this started, I thought, oh God, here we go. Somebody wants to be Oz. We should make it clear, by the way, Oz was a HBO uh, prison drama that, right. that was airing in the late 90s. And it felt very edgy at the time. I think watching it now, it feels like a fucking satire of it's so over the top and so exploitative that I think most people are kind of like, oh, man, I can't believe how seriously we took this. It's almost comic book sometimes. It goes. Yeah, it's very, very edgy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is not that it has moments that might feel extreme. Right. If you have not read a lot of prison stuff or watched a lot of prison stuff, mm-hmm. you might think, well, this feels a little ridiculous, but it's not right. Like it, I was thinking about one of those moments where there's almost a riot and the guards are just firing into the crowd to get them to all chill out. You know, yeah, yeah. I'm sure there are people watching this, watching that being like, come on. But like, that's real. That happened many times. There's lots of, you know, that's lot. There's lots of recorded incidents of that sort of thing. So I think that. um what started to draw me in is realizing that while there were, uh, let's say, extreme elements of this movie, it actually, in the realm of prison films, was playing it a little more relaxed. Uh, and I really liked the way that the relationship played out between Willem Dafoe and Edward Furlong. Uh, by the way, Edward Furlong is not one of my favorite actors, so I was kind of surprised that I was enjoying him in this, actually, uh, because I'm not a huge fan of him as an actor. Uh, but I thought he was pretty good in this, and he's surrounded by... He's still the by, weak link. I think he's the yes. weak link in the movie. Yes. But that is that is in comparison to what I think is not just like a good performance by Willem Dafoe, but maybe like one of the greatest pieces of acting I've ever seen. I, I, unbelievable. I, I think there's a lot of really strong performances in this movie, mm-hmm. and it's really impressive. Uh but the relationship between Edward Furlong and Willem Dafoe, I think, is really meaningful. And it I, there's a moment that really captures it because the Edward Furlong character just keeps waiting for the heel turn. Yeah. He's just waiting for this guy that he owes so much to at this point to tell him what the exchange is. There's going to be something that's asked of him that he can't pay. There's going to be a sex act. There's going right. to be... There's we're waiting be for something. it as an audience members. We're, we're kind of waiting for it as well. By the time he asked the question, Doug, I thought, I hope there isn't something because it's been too long. Yes. Like they've, they've been together too long for him to suddenly turn into a monster uh, or more of a monster, let's say. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the reveal that he's like, because of your age, because you're new here... Because you really didn't know what the fuck was going on. What I'm getting from our relationship is something I can't get from anyone else. And he doesn't say it, but I think most people watching it will know, like, this is a mentor relationship. This is, like, maybe not quite a father-son relationship, but it's a relationship where he's helping someone and not getting anything back. And he can't have that with anyone else. That's not okay for him in this place. This is the only person he can have that relationship with, and that's enough for him, that benefit of being able to feel those feelings. And I thought, Doug, that was a powerful fucking moment. And honestly, more emotionally raw than I was expecting, no judgment on him, but from an Edward Bunker book. I don't know if that was in the book or if that's just a script for the movie, but that felt more raw and real than I associate with like, 
a crime book or a prison book. You know what I mean? Like it really got at something that I thought was very interesting about the variety of relationships that exist in this context, you know? There is another level to it though, right? Because he makes it explicit that he probably wouldn't have taken on that mentor role if he didn't think that Edward Furlong was beautiful, right? That he was, right. yes. th that there's still a an attraction there to him that it, it is beyond just mentorship where it's like, well, there's also a love or maybe love is even too strong of a word, but certainly a physical attraction that goes beyond. I guess what I'm trying to say is if Edward Furlong wanted to have sex with William Defoe's character in this movie, he would absolutely do it 100%. But he, he feels that their connection is too strong to just outright rape him. Even though that is something that is it is explicit that William Defoe's character has done during his time in prison, sure. that is a regular part of the lives of prison, um, the lives in prison, and what we see when Edward Furlong first arrives in that prison, which by the way we haven't made explicit, he's he was like dealing marijuana or something. It's like it's it it very much is they're making an example of him because he was a fairly privileged person outside of it, and he 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 is coming into this prison situation a little bit naive and what he finds is the people that arrived at this prison with him some of them get sort of adopted by uh, prisoners like Willem Dafoe's character and get turned into basically rape victims just repeatedly yes and he yes. could easily have fallen into that and Willem Dafoe rescues him from that and you spend the first what half of the movie maybe further than that wondering oh when is like you said when is the when is the other foot going to drop when is when are we going to discover that Willem Dafoe's character is actually uh, evil? And we're even told by the people outside the prison who converse with Edward Furlong's character, like like Steve Buscemi, that this guy is a user, right? They said that he'd inject piss if he thought he could get a high with it, and that he's going to do that turn. And the fact that he never does, it's actually there's an emotional core to this movie that I was not expecting, and that yes. relationship yes. is so unusual that it could only come from the experience of someone who had actually been in the prison and saw those yes. relationships yes. in real life. And that's what I think, it, there's something revealing about this in a way that I don't think I've ever seen revealed in another prison movie. 100%. I, I, I think that, though, when he says that he's beautiful, I took that as both physical but also emotional. That there's You're exactly right. My only problem that. with that, and this goes back to what you were saying, is that I think Edward Furlong is, he's just not perfect for this role. You know, because he doesn't... It should have been somebody else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone with a little more charisma or just a little bit more spark to him because up to that point, you're like, what the fuck does he see in Edward Furlong? I just didn't get it. I assume that part of it, part of the vibe I got is that part of it is that um, Edward Furlong's character is also just so naive, right? Yeah. That, like, he really thinks that he would never... He doesn't feel the need to play a power game with Edward Furlong, right? That every other person he's in a relationship with, there has to be this exchange of power. Like his gang, they're all loyal to him, but that's because of his power with yeah. them. And yep. that that's okay in his world because it's just a form of respect. And Edward Furlong seems to be the only person that he brings into the circle who has literally nothing to offer but something about him doing something and being there for him when Edward Furlong has no capital of any kind makes him feel good. And I think there was something about that that like leans into the idea that here is someone who has been 
utterly corrupted by this prison system in every way, but still has some spark of humanity in them. Like, it's small. It's not much at all. I don't want to say that this guy isn't a monster in a lot of ways. Sure. But, like, he's getting an opportunity to not be a monster. And I think that has deeper implications for what we think of when we think of the you know criminal as if that's a state of being and not just a temporary role that you have taken on right and it's kind of clear that he he really can't function outside no 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 because of what the prison has done to him but you know he he says a couple times like i run this place and even at the end he says it right and it's sort of true in the sense he's kind of figured out the prison to the point where you know he doesn't seem like he's in any danger he gets certain comforts that other people don't get he has a group of people who really seem to respect him but like you said because of what he can provide but that is the kind of skills that he has developed there that cannot transfer in any possible way nope uh, this movie ends with a, a, a an attempt to escape the prison by both Willem Dafoe and Edward Furlan's character that um I mean, I'll spoil the ending a little bit, that he does not get out, Willem Dafoe. And he doesn't die either. He just ends up back in the prison. But that seems right, right? That seems like the correct thing, but only in the sense of this. he's been so twisted by the system that he is within that he has to stay there. It, the, it's a pipe dream to think that he could live out in the world in the way that even maybe Edward Furlong, who has uh, you know, connections and wealthy parents and stuff, could possibly do. I think in 2023... This sort of more serious prison drama, right? Yeah, has become such a trope that people might watch this now and feel like, oh, it's hitting all these notes, right? Mm. Or it's hitting all these moments that we associate with these kinds of movies. But you know, this is based off of Edward Bunker's book about prison, right? So, to what extent is the book that this movie is based on the fucking blueprint for the tropes that have become so? cliche and a certain style of prison movie this is not an exploitation prison movie right this is not a fucking right. big bird cage or some shit like that sure, sure this sure. is like very much a certain kind of like serious but also uh a extreme at times prison drama i think that uh it's worth keeping in mind that the source material for this could technically be the kind of like er document for a lot of those tropes because I think there was a part of my brain going oh now here's this scenario but like that's not really fair and I think the way the movie does those things is really good and I you know it I don't know that this is the sort of movie that I would be like it's so amazing I gotta tell everybody they have to check out this movie immediately but I was really surprised Doug by how strong it was mostly because unlike you I hadn't heard shit about this movie mm. I was utterly unaware of its existence of it the pedigree of the per of the performers in it and even the idea that Steve Buscemi had done a movie other than Trees Lounge that I'd really want to see and this falls into that it's not a it's not a world-changing movie about prison per se, but it's really well done. I felt like it was really well acted. I was really impressed, as we said already, by some of these other performances, whether that's Mickey Rourke or Danny Trejo or Mark Boone Jr. Uh, I I don't know. I just felt like this was a, a, a continual surprise for me, maybe because I had really low expectations of like, a prison movie I had never heard of before. But there's a lot of familiar faces all throughout this and let's talk about some of the supporting performances anything stick out to you i want to speak specifically about the um mickey rourke performance in a moment but anyone else except for mickey rourke 
stick out to you in terms of performance. It's really strong all the way through. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I think that uh, Mark Boone Jr., of course. Uh, I also wanted to mention... I will say, throughout this podcast that we've been doing, my appreciation and respect for Mark Boone Jr. has just risen. I've always thought of him as just a guy who shows up and, you know, he's in the Batman movies and stuff. He is a great actor. He just looks like a fucking slob, and I love it. (laughs) I don't know which one of these people it is, but... Sure. In the game, right? There's a guy who oftentimes plays an angry dad in other things. But he's oh, are, are you talking about the, the guy from um, The Wire? The the guy who played... Hold on a second. Oh, he yeah. Was he on The Wire? Maybe he was on The Wire. Oh, he was on... He's Not only was he on The Wire, but he was on... He was the star of the second season of The Wire playing... Yeah, yeah Frank Sabatka. Right. Yeah. Frank Sabatka. He's not in it a lot, but when he's in it, I really appreciated him. I've seen him in a lot of other stuff. Him and Mark Boone Jr., I think are a good combo of like yeah. two jerk offs who would be friends in prison, you know, like uh, they, they kind of vibe off each other. Uh, again, Danny Trejo doesn't have a lot to do in it, but I always appreciate him as well. He's so jovial about being in prison, man. He is unbothered by the idea of spending the rest of his life there. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Seymour uh, um, Cassell is worth mentioning, obviously. Uh, I think his role is interesting as the prison guard who has kind of a relationship with Willem Dafoe's character, you know, and it's, it is, he's concerned for him, but you can tell that he doesn't also fully trust him. He just has kind of given up on trying to control Earl. You know, he sort of let that idea go. I think he he also recognizes that having Willem Dafoe's character as an intermediary is like a necessary Helpful. part. Yes, yes, yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah, That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, he he doesn't fully trust him, but they also have some sort of mutual respect going on. The funny thing about the John Hurt performance is that he's mostly absent except for one little scene, and that scene is so fucking good. It's so funny because I just was like, oh, John Hurt is in this weird, and he do- he's not given anything to do until there's this moment where Edward Furlong's character has a retrial and it goes terribly yeah and he's talking to he's he's the dad and he's talking to his son and he wants to give him these pictures of their his mom who must have passed right and he can't give them to him and he's just so defeated he's a rich man who can't do anything to help his son and the look on his face of just like being destroyed when the rest of the movie He's just there. He's not doing anything. He's just a face you recognize. That little scene, I thought, oh, okay. I get why you're in this movie because that was yeah. very good. Very, yeah. very good. Uh, yeah, so the only other thing I wanted to mention is that there's two musical performance people yes. in the movie. One is uh, Jake Labatz, who I'm largely unfamiliar with, but he does a song in the film that's very well done and very sort of like – it's a weird moment because it's playing over a bunch of stuff as like almost like a montage, but it really fits the movie. And sure. then there's a random appearance by Anoni, uh, 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 who I, you know, I, I uh, knew of Anoni when uh, uh, Anthony and the and the Jacksons is it or Johnsons. Johnsons first came on the scene. But I really fell in love with Anoni's solo record. That's really more uh, the thing that I am familiar with. But uh, to see, you know, th- that sort of cameo was so random and 
felt very much to me like maybe this is a Steve Buscemi thing. Like, Anoni had a record come out in that year. That was the first Anthony and the Johnsons record was in 2000. So I wonder if Steve Buscemi just knew of Anthony and the Johnsons, like, from the scene in New York or something. I don't know. But that song that Anoni sings in the movie is on the record, and it's like... Very intense. So I don't know. It, I, I I love that. That was an interesting little moment out of nowhere. It is the most surreal moment in the movie, right? Because all these prisoners are watching this very uh, vulnerable performance, and they they don't get it necessarily, right? They don't understand fully. Like some, it does seem like Willem Dafoe's character maybe gets it a little bit more, but like the other, like uh, I think Danny Trail is like, let's get out of here. What's going on here? But it is it is like I didn't know about Anohi uh, Anohi till uh, Hope There's Someone came out in like 2003 2004. And I was listening to a lot of the band at that point, but like this feels early for that. But I, you know, Steve Buscemi's a guy who is part of that, maybe that New York scene that, 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 well, I don't know if they came out of the New York scene, but uh, he obviously has his ear to the ground. By the way, one other connection to other um, things that we've been a part of is that the music for this film is done by John Lurie, who, of course, appears in a number of John, uh, sorry, Jim Jarmusch's films, including Down by Law. Sure, and we, yeah, of, co- yeah. of course, that has a connection to Steve Buscemi as well, who appeared in Mystery Train, and actually a movie that we'll be talking about soon, which we'll mention at the end of this episode. Uh, I also want to say that if you are a Philly person, it is worth watching this for the Eastern State Penitentiary of it all as well. It is very much one of the more menacing locations you could do a prison film. You know, it is a dark locale, you know? Yeah. Oh, we, by the way, I should mention that we did not add that siren for atmosphere that is actually happening, happening on Liam's end. At yes. This very moment. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, Liam, what did you think of Mickey Rourke? Mickey Rourke plays a effeminate, potentially uh, not, not trans, but uh, um, maybe aspiring to be trans uh, character who shares a cell with Edward Furlong's character in the film. Uh, it's, for the time, a pretty three-dimensional role for someone who would normally be ostracized in this kind of movie, but it also isn't a huge part. What did you think of Mickey Rourke? I mean, I think it's hard when you see a performance like that not to feel weird yes. because we don't love a cishet actor playing the most extreme stereotype of that kind of uh, person and of that kind of mannerism mm-hmm. on the other hand i don't think mickey rourke is trying to make fun i think in the context of 2000 mickey rourke doing that role i think it was about trying to find the reality of that right like i think it's meant to simply be a strong embodiment of that person and and the and really the complexity of gender in prison, of which there is a lot of that that happens. I am not totally comfortable with Mickey Rourke being the person who brings that to life, but I don't know of who would have been better at the time per se. There probably was somebody who could have done that better, but you know, this isn't that different than the idea of like, you know, uh, what is it? Uh, uh, to Wong Fu with Love, Julie Newmar or whatever. Yeah, yeah. That whatever. movie should be a nightmare. That should be a fucking hate crime. 
And it's not. That's a great movie. I'm sorry. Tu Wong Fu with Love is a beautiful movie. And it shouldn't be, right? Because that's that's three cishet actors playing a stereotype. But the movie itself is actually really meaningful and beautiful. And I think they do a good job. And I really wish Wesley Snipes played more characters like that because he's actually very good in that role. Yeah. I mean, the, anything that opens up the idea of gender to people and the, right. the, the flexibility within. It, it It's difficult because he, I always think about... Jared Leto's character in Dallas Buyers Club and um, the the idea of, of an actor being brave. They're so brave because they're willing right. to do yes. this. And, and this feels a little bit like one of those, look, Mickey Rourke being brave. The fact that Mickey Rourke was in kind of a downturn his, in his career at this point, I think there is something, like, I think he's trying to play it real. But, yes. you know, it's still the reality through the eyes of someone who doesn't necessarily understand that experience. It... it, it I think it's a strong performance in a role that would almost certainly be um, problematic, and that's fine. That's that's also somewhat that reflective of the era in which this movie was made. But it has to be mentioned because it, it is definitely a performance that sticks out. He, I mean, he he owns the role. Yeah, I just don't know that now we would be like, you know, who'd be good in this character, <laughs> Mickey Rourke? Like there would be the thought process would be we need to find someone who maybe is closer to this character so that they don't fall into stereotypes. Now, now again, I don't think Mickey Rourke is mocking, and that's really the nightmare, is someone who is taking a real person, a real character, someone who's supposed sure. to have dimensions, mm-hmm. and making it a fucking clown, you know, making it a fucking let's, let's make fun of this person's reality. That's right. really the nightmare scenario, and that's not what this is. It doesn't change the fact that Today, if we, you were making this movie, I hope they would say, hey, I bet we know someone who would have a bit more real-life experience to add some nuance and compassion here. And that's not to hit on Mickey Rourke's performance. I think he's doing what he can do, but it is a bit. And you know, there's a note in the IMDb that's like, he improvised a lot of his lines. Well, that doesn't make me feel entirely no. comfortable yeah, at all. That, that actually, actually makes, makes it me a little feel worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. uncomfortable because I want it to be... I want Ed Bunker to be fucking there in all those scenes going, yeah. no, 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 that's not right. That's not what, you know what I mean? Like sort of guiding the performance to avoid something that feels mocking, deriding, whatever. Yeah. And of course, even Edward Bunker's experience, this is something to note as well. You know, he was writing his book about his experience in the late, late 60s, 70s, right? In Folsom Prison. Yes. And so it's, it you know, this is a movie that takes place 20 25 years later and and there are could be certain changes both in perception Agreed. and yes. and yeah so it's something to keep in mind I just want to ask quickly about halfway through the movie they introduce Tom Arnold into the film uh Tom Arnold plays a character who has a violent sexually violent past that we discover and his whole thing is to be a threat to Edward Furlong's character who he is you know uh, overtly trying to rape and almost does and actually does sexually assault to an extent and uh what do you think of his performance? You don't usually think of, of Tom Arnold in this kind of role. Oh, I think that sort of role is exactly up his alley. I mean, let's let's say mm-hmm. that I don't think it's a strong performance. I think it's a strong casting. Yes. He's there's just, someone recognized in him something that a lot of people have not seen previously. Yeah, he's just he's really just being Tom Arnold and someone say said I mean, someone, someone connected to Steve Buscemi or Steve Buscemi himself said, you know, who'd be good as a menacing redneck, Tom Arnold. And he fucking is, you know, he doesn't train. I mean, not that every performance has to be transformative, but I don't think he's stretching here. He's just being Mm -hmm. 
mean. And I think that that works. Uh, it's also funny to see him and Edward Furlong as they were both people who rode Arnold Schwarzenegger's coattails to stardom. <laughs> That's so, true. There you go. There you you go. know what? Actually, I'm going to take some issue with that because I actually just watched Terminator 2 a few days ago. Edward Furlong, I don't think, is a great actor in any capacity. Um, you know, he, he has some good films and, and many bad ones. I just don't think he was ever a very strong actor. I actually think that Tom Arnold is particularly good in True Lies, which is why he got so many much recognition from it. I, he, he is still just doing his thing, but people at that time didn't even know he could do that thing. He's sort of a alternate uh, Jim Belushi, right? I think that's disrespectful to Jim Belushi, but sure. Is it? I was thought I was being disrespectful to Tom Arnold. <laughs> I mean, not that I love Jim Belushi, but I don't have any affection for Tom Arnold either. It wasn't about affection. It was just that I think people thought of him as um, Roseanne's husband at the time and a guy who could be like goofy and that's it. And, so, you know, at least we know that in the right role, he can pull off something a little bit more layered. Uh, Liam, the reviews of this movie, and you'll see it even on Letterboxd now, but certainly at the time it came out, criticize it for being meandering that it, it just doesn't focus itself to the idea of like the prison escape until like the final half hour or so and before that it doesn't really go anywhere would you agree with that um no i think the idea that a movie about prison needs a central like uh narrative mission in order to make sense is really uh short-sighted about what fucking prison is right like i i i personally think well and also i'm not sure that meandering is much of an insult to me right i I like a lot of movies that meander i think in this case it's not meandering it's showing you the experience that uh edward bunker was trying to describe of his you know time in prison i mean not that he is this character per se but he wrote a book about prison and it's not like from day one of being in prison he thought you know this is how all this is going to end or something you know what i mean like yeah i think think what you're you're saying is is the same thing that the fact is people don't know what it's like in prison and so all we have are people's testimonials and movies and television shows that tell us what it's like so this movie spends a lot of time establishing this is what it's like from the perspective of someone who spent time in prison and honestly i find all that stuff really fascinating and scary and revealing uh it reminded me a lot of there's a michael mann film from a tv movie called the jericho mile which was also based in some part on the experiences of edward bunker and that movie is just about you know for the most part it's about this guy like learning to run you know he, he, and, and getting opportunities because of that but a lot of it is just spent at the internal politics of trying to just do your time. You know, with the, the, in the movie, they say it a lot, and this is a really common quote, you know, you do the time, but you don't let it do you. And the impossibility of that, where it's just the, the, mental, um, the mental toughness it takes to know that you're not just looking at one or two or five years, that it could be 10 years or 15 years, that it's the rest of your life in this situation and how you survive within that. And I, you know, seeing how these people survive, even though they're just actors, you know, playing the roles, I think it does a good job of showing both the harshness and some of the care that these men take uh, regarding each other in this situation. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's very fair. 
And I'm just frustrated with this feeling. I mean, if anything, someone could, I think, have a more serious criticism that having the escape at the end is the part that doesn't fit because it's I like, would agree. I would I, agree. I, I, you know, we don't need this uh, dramatic climax that the movie could just end with them being in prison. There doesn't have to be a, a dramatic way to wrap up the narrative per se in order to truly represent the experience. But I think it makes sense narratively for the Edward Furlong character who always seems a bit out of step with this place, you know, and it's, it's sort of one way to resolve that. Another one would be his death and yeah. his death might actually be a little bit more representative of the experience of prison, honestly. The, yeah. It may be representative of real life, but in terms of what the movie is trying to do with William Defoe's character, where his contentment in just helping this person and the discovery, you know, all that concern that we had regarding what his motivations were at the end, he's happy enough and content enough just to have helped this person get away, even though it means that that person could never really pay him back in any, uh, in any real way. I mean, I think there's, there's, there's something to that. There's, there's a real heart. I mean, this isn't a movie that is about heart really, but it, I think it is about the way that people learn to survive in impossible situations, but also the connections that they make within those situations and particularly how men connect in those situations. What do you think of Steve Buscemi as a director here? This is a very different movie from Trees Lounge. Trees Lounge is very much a, uh, even though it obviously has a very personal material, it's about his performance as much as anything. Steve Buscemi does act in this. Uh, he has a small role, as is his brother. But, you know, this is really about Steve Buscemi, the director. What do you think of him as a director? I think this is really strong. I think um, Trees Lounge is more up my alley as a kind of movie. You know, sure. it's very much my sweet spot in a lot of ways. But I think this is a really strong... There's a lot of people. This is a huge cast. This is a movie that, whether people think it's meandering or, or not, it's this massive cast, a lot of locations, a lot of settings. If people have been to Eastern State Penitentiary, they know it's it can't be easy to light in, in there. It can't be easy to operate. I mean, this prison hasn't been in operation since 1971, this movie was being filmed in like the late 90s, right? So like that's a long time for these places to be deteriorating and they're filming in this place. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it's a demanding shoot. It's a demanding story. It's a lot of people who have to have enough time to be real, to be actual characters. It's a lot to manage for your second movie. And in that sense, it's basically a complete success, even though I wouldn't necessarily say – this is like the greatest prison movie ever made or anything, you know, incredible like that. I am really impressed by this film and it really makes me think I need to see, I don't actually know considering we have a Steve Buscemi uh, podcast. It's kind of ridiculous how many films he's directed, right? Like we've talked about covering them, but I really just know trees lounge. Like that's it. That's the one thing I'm familiar with. I'm kind of really curious about how many other things he's done. And if I need to like, make an effort outside of this podcast to just see them all because I was not expecting this to be as strong as, as it was, which is no disrespect to him. It wasn't about his capabilities. It was just a reality of how could this movie have this many people in it from this time period. And I never even heard of it before, you know, uh, he, he's directed in a few other films, uh, directed 2005's Lonesome Jim, uh, 2007's Interview. Most of his work has been on television. He's directed episodes of sure, Unbreakable yeah, Kimmy yeah. Schmidt, Portlandia, um, Miracle Workers he's directed as well. So a lot of that. So uh, there's this seems to be, in some ways, 
perhaps the actually surprisingly enough he directed two episodes of oz um and they were i just want to see if they were after this or not because i wonder if that was um if that was a contributing yeah so that was in 99 i wonder if that was one of the things that contributed to him directing animal factory and maybe giving him the confidence to it i think lonesome jim is supposed to be pretty good so i'm looking forward to us checking that out eventually but yeah no i'm curious as well he's a very talented director and i'm glad he's stuck to it even if a lot of the work has been in tv you know who else is a talented director liam who jim jarmusch uh the the director of Strangers in Paradise, Down by Law, Ghost Dog, uh, Coffee and Cigarettes, Only Lovers Left Alive. Very beloved director, a lot of credibility. In 2019, he directed a movie called The Dead Don't Die, a horror comedy about zombies with uh, Bill Murray, Adam Driver, Tilda Swinton, and Carol Kane. So this actually, (laughs) it would be a long time before we got to that on our Carol Kane podcast, but uh, also featuring in this movie is Steve Buscemi. Liam, have you already seen The Dead Don't Die? I haven't, and it's a real weird thing because when it came out, I was so excited about it. Uh, friend of the show, Josh Alvarez, saw it twice uh, in the theater, and I started it when it came on streaming, and I had to stop it just for life reasons, not because sure. I didn't like it, and I never went back to it, and I don't know why. The reaction to it was a little bit odd back in 2019 people seemed confused by it for the most part i did hear some people who absolutely loved it and then other people who really loved jim jarmusch who thought it was complete fucking garbage i've only watched like i caught it on tv and watched like a 20 minute segment and i thought it was interesting but i felt like oh i really need to see this from the beginning and i will on the next episode of how do you do fellow kids 2019's the dead don't die i'm hoping to get that in by the end of october by the way to make it seasonal uh yeah, in regards yeah. to yeah yeah so uh yeah no i'm really looking forward to it a lot of familiar faces i didn't mention also the iggy pop rizza um you know rosie perez danny glover lots of familiar faces in the dead don't die I'm excited to catch up with it. Liam, if people want to check out more episodes of How Do You Do Fellow Kids or other wonderful podcasts, what's the best way for them to do so? Well, Doug, they can, of course, head to cinepunks.com. That's C-I-N-E-P-O-N-X. For the latest episodes of this podcast, as well as a whole family of interesting podcasts, there's also some new writing going up there regularly, reviews, that sort of stuff. Uh, If they want to dive into our archives and all the different topics that we cover here, they can head to cinemasmorgasbord.com where you can search by uh, show, whatever show you're most interested in. You can look up uh, uh, episodes of that going back to when we started. Uh, And of course, uh, Cinepunks is on social media, C-I-N-E-P-O-N-X on uh, a lot of platforms. Not yet Blue Sky. Uh, I need to give myself an invite code and get Cinepunks on there, but we haven't done that yet. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we are on whatever the fuck it's called now, uh, at Cinema Smorg. It's Twitter. It's just fucking called Twitter. That's what it is. Yeah, By the way, what I'm going to do is I'm going to use one of my codes to steal the Cinepunks uh, account on Blue Sky, and then I'm cool. just going to put a bunch of garbage on it. What do you think about cool. that? Cool. No, that's great. I love you. <laughs> Uh, uh, as Leah mentioned, yes, cinemasmorgasbord.com has podcasts devoted to such diverse topics as the career of Dick Miller, Alejandro Jodorowsky, Paul Bartel, George Kennedy, and more. Uh, you can find that on Twitter at cinemasmorg, S-M-O-R-G, or do a search for cinemasmorgasbord on Facebook. Why don't you uh, subscribe? Why don't you leave us a review on your podcast provider of choice? Or why don't you just tell a friend? Every little bit helps, and that helps most of all. But for now, Liam, we need to take a little break. We're going to be back very soon with The Dead Don't Die. Good night, everyone. Night-night. Night-night. 